Uh, the Gospel of John, which is a very exciting book. I'm really excited to study this. Obviously, there are several books that tell the story of the life of Christ. Uh, but John is different from the other three. We call the other three the synoptics because they look at things from the same perspective. This one looks at things from a different perspective. And so we see a lot in this. Um, you, you'll notice that. There's a lot more conversations Jesus has. They're really cool. There's a lot more sermons of Jesus, uh, some different ones than what we get, say, in Matthew that also contains a lot of sermons. So there's just a lot of things to look at. And uh, I'm not good at introductions, so we're not going to do much of that. We're going to plunge right into it. So would somebody read John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All right, he talks about the Word. Now, what does a Word do? Nothing. Describes. What's another verb for a word? A word does what? Communicates. Tells. Jesus is the word of God in that he reveals God. He tells about God. A, a word exists to say something. And so Jesus is God's expression to us. If you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus. He's God's word. He's God's message to us. Now, do you know of any other passages besides John 1 where the word word is used for Jesus? Where? 1 John 1 and Revelation 19. What do 1 John, John, and Revelation all have in common? All written by the uh, author, uh, same author, John uh, who I believe is the author of this, John, the uh, son of Zebedee, brother of James. Um, so, this fits right with that. Jesus as the word. Now, he starts out in what time period here? The beginning. In the beginning. Now, um, in the beginning, he says, was the word. The idea is that at the very point of beginning, the word already was. Now he talks about some other things in this that started, like verse 3, all things came into being. Or verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Or even verse 14, the word became flesh. But here's something that didn't become. In the beginning, the word already was. Now, it's interesting to compare the beginning of the Gospel of John with the other Gospels uh, along this line. Um, where did the other Gospels begin? This Gospel begins wherever God is. Where did the other Gospels begin? Yes, but in what geographical place? Uh, where? What city? Not Galilee. Where did some of the other Gospels begin? Their story. Jerusalem or Bethlehem. But we begin in John in heaven. Um, you know, Luke, he dates the beginning of his story by Roman emperors and Jewish priests and so forth. But this is in the beginning. You know, Matthew and Luke take us to start in a manger. And Mark takes us back to ancient prophecies. But John takes us all the way back before the beginning into eternity. In the beginning, was the Word. Now he says the Word was with God. That is, the Word, Jesus, 
was, was there with God. There's a separation, there's a distinction between the two. They're two separate people, we might say. But he also says, and the word was God. That is, he partook of the nature of God. He shared in Godness, Godhood, the God-like uh, qualities. Uh, so, if Jesus was God, if you want to know what's God, what God is like, look at Jesus. Everything you see in Jesus, everything you hear in him, every attitude he had, everything he said and did, reveals God. That's why it's so exciting to study about Jesus. Because you're looking at God. God is always Jesus-like. So if you want to see God, just look at Jesus and see what he's like. It's amazing. It's exciting uh, to think of, of, of that. So he repeats then in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. That's how he begins. Jesus was in the beginning, he was with God, and he shared in the divine nature. Comments or questions on those first two verses? Okay, would somebody read 3 to 5? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. There came a man sent from God. Okay, that's good. Three, three to five. Oh, Very good. So, all things came into being through him. Now, who was the creator anyway? Probably we would have said... God created the world, maybe even thinking about the Father specifically. But in fact, what instrument did God use? What agency did he use to create the world? Jesus. And the, the texts of the Bible are pretty... Um, uh, they, they, they say the same thing about that. In 1 Corinthians 8, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, all say that God created through Jesus. Look at 117. The, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So God created through Jesus, and God also reveals through Jesus. He's the means by which God created everything that exists. And he says, in him was life. Now notice the preposition there. He doesn't say, through him was life. Or by him was life. But in him was life. Life is more personally and intimately connected with Jesus than just saying this was by him. Life is in Jesus. Life is not something that exists in its own right. Life is something that comes spiritual life, true life, and even physical existence, comes by connection with Jesus. Now I want you to see that whole concept is such a big part of the Gospel of John, that life is in Jesus. Ryan, you want to look up 11.25, and uh, Seth, you want to look up 14.6, and uh, Taylor, would you get 10.10, uh, Mason, you want to get 20, verses 30 and 31, uh, Logan, you want to get uh, 635, and uh, David, you want to get uh, 410. I want you to just hear these and think about them. Okay, who do I got? Ryan? 1125. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Who have I got next? Seth? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, Taylor. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You, you hear that in 1010? I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Amazing. Many other signs, therefore, did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Yes, that's the purpose of the book. We say the purpose is to create belief, but that doesn't go far enough. The purpose is to create belief so that through believing you would have life. That's what John's all about. It's about life. And the life comes in Jesus. Logan? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I'm the bread of life. And David? Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Yes, Jesus is the water of life, he's the bread of life, he's the source of life. It's not surprising when you look at the Gospel of John that it begins here, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, the light, he says in verse 5, and he changes tenses. Notice that. The light shines in the darkness. It's not that the light was shining. The light continues to shine. Jesus is our light. And the darkness did not do something to it. We have a hard time translating that verb. Uh, it means to grasp. The darkness did not grasp it. But does it mean it didn't grasp it intellectually? Or that it didn't grasp it to like subdue it? I think the latter is better. Now, even the New American Standard says comprehend, and the margin says overpower. I think that's better. There was a conflict between light and darkness, and the darkness could not without the light. It could not conquer it. It could not extinguish it. You see how Satan, using the Jews and others, did his dead-level best to, to overcome the light. But that was futile. The light prevailed because Jesus, who is the life, is our light. That's where John begins. Those first five verses, and that's talking about the very uh, depths of what God has done in Jesus. Do you have a comment or question? Okay. Would somebody read six to eight? There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear with his the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. So, Jesus always existed. In the beginning was the Word. But here there came a man. This one came into existence. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, there's something curious about the Gospel of John, when it comes to identifying this John, who do we call this John? And we call him that because that's what he's called Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Wonder why John doesn't call him John the Baptist. I think there's a good answer to that. I don't know if you know it. Well, let me ask you this. 
Why would it be necessary for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to call him John the Baptist? Yeah, to distinguish him from the Apostle John. But what do you know about the book of John as it, uh, when it comes to the Apostle John? He doesn't call himself John. He never uses his own name in the book. So the only John mentioned by name in this book is this John the Baptist. I think that's why he doesn't have to use his name. Now, what does he say that John came as, or came to be? A witness. Now, usually when you think about witnesses, you think about what kind of a context? Trial. And that's very much the way you see this gospel. This is a gospel giving evidence. And we, we have sort of a trial motif, a trial concept. And, and you've got various signs that are proofs, but you also have various witnesses in John that will give their testimony. That's what John the Baptist did. He came to witness about the light so that all may believe through him. He was not the light. He came to testify about the light. John was not sent to do some great work of his own. John came to point to someone else. That was John's whole purpose. He was getting people to focus on the light. And so that's the first witness we call up in this book that's going to testify or that does testify about the light, which is Jesus. Comments or questions through verse 8? Yes? I, you know, who knows what the value of is in that. I wonder if this is not just a way of really further emphasizing he's bearing witness to the light. John will later say, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not the other thing. They said, who are you? I'm a voice pointing to Jesus. So it seems like he's just trying to focus all the attention on Jesus. So maybe the idea is here, simply, I'm not the light, he's not the light. He's just bearing witness of the light, just trying to focus more attention on Jesus. Some people think that, that John was written in part to battle some people who were trying to follow John the Baptist. But I'm not so sure about that. I think this may just be trying to emphasize who Jesus is. Good question. Other questions or comments? Okay. Uh, 9 to 14. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who, oh. were, born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay. Now, there was the true light. John was not. But there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, when he says John was the true light, I want you to think about that idea a minute. Wes, would you get 632? And Cody, you want to get 15.1? Because there's that concept in John of the true. Okay, Wes, 632? Okay, somewhere it says true bread in there, but that may not be the verse. I may have the wrong one. But Je Jesus said it. He's the true bread. Cody, 15 one. 
I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Yes. So he's the true vine. He's the true bread. Here he's the true light. That is, he's the authentic and genuine light as opposed to any other light that may come along. They aren't the real light. Jesus is. He comes into the world and what does he do in verse 9? He enlightens every man. Now, that is, he shines his light on everyone. That doesn't necessarily mean everybody responds favorably when that light is shown. Jason, you want to get uh, chapter 3, verse 19 to 21? You know, Jesus, the light's universally available. Jesus shines for everyone. But listen to this, 319 to 21, Jason. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So when the light shines, there's two different reactions to the light. People don't respond necessarily the same way when the light shines. Some are drawn to the light, some are repelled by the light, but he enlightens every man. The light's there. It's available. Now, he was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him. Got that point again. But what, what was the world's relationship to Jesus when he came? Did not know him. That's outrageous. It's outrageous because Jesus was the one through whom the world was made. And yet the world he made did not know him. And so he came where? Verse 11. To his own people, probably a reference to the Jews. And what was their relationship to him? They did not receive him. He came home and his own people rejected him. It's amazing. All that God had done for the world, all that Jesus had done for the Jews, and what do they do? They don't know him. They refuse to receive him. They reject him. Much of what we'll see in John shows their rejection of Jesus. But there are those who receive him, verse 12, some who swim against the current, break the pattern that the world has, and these that received him, to them he gave the power and authority to become children of God. He breaks the barriers of sin and his wrath so that they can become God's children. These who were born, not of blood, it wasn't by a fleshly lineage that they became God's children. Not of the will of the flesh, it wasn't by their own desire. Not of the will of man. It wasn't something that they just did by their own effort. But of God. How are you born again? Could you ever be born into God's family by your own effort? Like you're just going to make yourself one of God's children? He has to be the one who took the initiative through Jesus to adopt us and to receive us. All right, come into questions through verse 13. Is verse 1 in the beginning an intentional reference to Genesis 1-1? Perhaps, yeah. I would say so. There's kind of like a recreation idea kind of going on here where we go back into the family of God almost like Adam and Eve would begin. There is that. 
I'm not sure that's the point of saying in the beginning in verse 1, it may just be to identify the time, but there is this idea of being born again. Other thoughts? Okay, 14, well, 14, let's talk about that before we read on. This is an amazing verse. It's probably one of the most striking verses in the Bible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the sentence for which John wrote this gospel. This is kind of the heart of what all the Bible's talking about. Isn't it amazing? Only God can inspire people to write things that are this profound so simply. I mean, he writes this in such terse words. Just, he just says it. But look at what he says. You know, he, he comes back and says in the Word. Now that ties us back to verse 1. And he's given us some hints of what he's going to say in verse 14 already. For example, he said in verse, uh, you know, 3 and 4, uh, in him, in verse 4, in him was life, and the light, life was the, the light of men. He said in verse 9, the true light coming into the world. So we already know the light came into the world, but this tells us how. Now, I don't know if I've got to, maybe I Think about this uh, a little bit. Um, you've got, there you go. You've got this idea of in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, now contrast that with verse 14. What The, the easiest one is, in contrast with the word was God, or the word was with God, rather. The word was with God. What do you see in verse 14 that corresponds to being with God? Dwelt among us. Yeah, he dwelt among us. Now, what corresponds to the fact that he was God? He became flesh. And what corresponds to in the beginning was? Well, that's really the word became. So we have what he was, and then at some point he became. He was with God, he dwells among us. He was God, he became flesh. Now that's an amazing thing to think about. You know, that's a pretty blunt way to put that, in fact. To say he became flesh. He became a man. How could God do that? And why would God do that? You know, that, that's just really a, a remarkable thing. Except for our sin, he became human. I really believe the Bible teaches that Jesus was absolutely God and absolutely man. In that, he defies all categories. And so you can throw away the syllogisms and the debate propositions. I can prove to you that Jesus was not a man or that he was not God with the greatest of ease. He was not uh, a man. Because Jesus forgave sins. Man can't forgive sins, therefore he wasn't a man. He was not God. God doesn't get hungry, thirsty, and sleepy. Jesus got hungry, thirsty, and sleepy, therefore he wasn't God. You can't do it that way when it comes to Jesus. Jesus, he's in a class by himself. As God become flesh. 
And so, if you want, you can never imagine what would it be like? What would, what would God be like if he became a man? You know, what would he do? If he was in, in human flesh, if he was like we are, what would he be like? What would he do? What would he say? What would he think? What would he feel? That's Jesus. It's exactly what you've got. And he dwelled among us. Now, before, where did God dwell? In the tabernacle, the temple. But now God chose to be with his people in a more personal way. He dwells among them in the person of Jesus. And we saw his glory, did they? That's kind of an odd thing to say, don't you think? Did they really see his glory? You're thinking of? Yes. Uh, they certainly did see that glory in the transfiguration more like we thought, but I'm not so sure that he means the transfiguration here. In fact, John doesn't bother to record the transfiguration. So how did they see his glory? Seeing God's character. Exactly. Seeing his character, seeing his nature, seeing who he was. That's God's glory. God's glory is not so much the glow on the mountain of transfiguration as it is the kind of person that he was. Jesus' glory involved humiliation and sacrifice and service. That's his glory. They saw his glory, but it wasn't what you think it would be. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. He was God's only son. You can drop the word begotten there. It's probably not the best translation. Probably saying only son is better. That's a misapprehension of of the Greek, and uh, some of the uh, uh, newer translations reflect that. Uh, my New American Standard says unique or only one of the, uh, his kind, which is probably correct. Only uh, one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth is what's usually used to translate that phrase from the Old Testament, the loving kindness and truth, or something like that. Jesus is the revelation of God's nature to us. You can see the glorious God in the person of Jesus. That's incredible. Verse 14, you can think about that for a long, long time. But that's what this is all about. So every time we see Jesus, we are seeing God as a man living among us. Isn't that amazing? Break it. Moses is Exodus 33, show me your glory, and then God describes himself. Even later on in John, they say, show us the Father. Jesus says, you're looking at it, you're looking at me. Isn't it interesting? That's what God wants us to see when we're looking at him. If God was to display his glory, what would he think his glory was? What do you think your glory is? What would you most want to show about yourself that defines you? Well, with God, what defines him is his love and his humility and his service and his purity and his holiness and all those kinds of things. What defines God is not some great feat of strength nearly as much as it is his character. Other thoughts? It reminds me of Exodus 33 when Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. And God simply says, I'll be gracious, I'll be gracious, and show compassion, and I'll have compassion. Uh, and that, that's my glory. Um, and, I, and I think we, we think of you know, how great God is. And, you know, God rarely shows his greatness, but as soon as some amazing 
amazing thing, you know, lightning, fireworks, or whatever. It, you know, it's glory and it's going to pass on people. And, uh, and this glory is always shown by doing good to others. Amen. Brigham. And when Jesus talks about being glorified in the book of John, making a reference to his death, which is going to be the greatest moment of showing who God is. Absolutely. Exactly. Other thoughts? All right, would somebody read 15 to 18? John, John testified about him and cried, out saying, This was he of, of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than that, for he exists for me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law has given through Moses grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So, John, we go back to his testimony. What did he say about Jesus? He says, this one who is my successor is my predecessor. And therefore he's higher than me. The fact that Jesus predates John shows his greatness. He was in the beginning. And uh, of his fullness, we have all received. We've been blessed by him, particularly with grace upon grace. Every experience we have of God's grace is replaced by another experience of God's grace. You never use up the grace of God. There's always more to take its place. It's just grace and more grace and more grace. That's what we receive when we receive Jesus. Again, you see what God's really like. He doesn't say it's just power and more power and more power. God has all power. But the thing that he has that he especially prides himself in is his grace. The, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God in any time. So Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal God. Nobody else has ever seen him, but Jesus not only saw him, but where was he? Yeah, in the bosom of the Father. He was his closest companion. He had the most intimate possible relationship with the Father, and therefore he can reveal him in an unprecedented way. Nobody else could ever reveal God like Jesus could. Nobody else ever knew him so well. Jesus had known him forever and been as close as you could possibly be. In fact, Jesus shared his nature. So he has explained him. What you see in the life of Jesus, not just in what he says, but what you see in Jesus' life is a revelation. It is, it is an uncovering of, of God and who he is. All of this shows us the significance of John's picture of Jesus. These first 18 verses just tell you that's why you need to study this. Because Jesus reveals God. He shows what God's like. I want to know about God. I want to be like Him. But how can I ever be like God? He's so different than I am. Well, you can be like Jesus. He's what God is when He's a man. Comments and questions? Can you explain the contrast in verse 17? For the law was given to Moses. Well, I mean, I think He's just making the contrast between the law of Moses 
and the revelation that comes by Jesus. Now he says the law was given through Moses, but he contrasts that by saying grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law is less than grace and truth, and Moses gave it. It was more detached from him. Grace and truth, the very, those very characteristics come in Jesus. So I think he's just pointing out the superiority of what Jesus brings to what Moses brought. Other comments or questions? Yes, JP. Um, why does it say that the universe is no one has seen God? Well, I think he's saying we haven't seen, no, none of us have seen him except Jesus. Except he doesn't say, well, we haven't seen him, Jesus has. He says, we haven't seen him. But Jesus, the only begotten God, was in the bosom of the Father. So he shares the nature of God, and he was a bosom buddy, bosom companion of him forever. So, wow, we, have, we, we don't know anything about God, and he knows everything about God. I think that's the contrast. Other questions or comments, Mike? I find it interesting in verse 15, it says, Because he was before me, yet in, the, in Luke's account... John was born in a worldly sense before Jesus was, but here he's just recognizing that the deity and that he was from the beginning. Yeah, because even Jesus' work, although it overlapped John, was really started later and ended later. So he comes after John historically, but he preceded him in reality. Yeah. Alan. Um, I think I misunderstood what you meant by beginning. Did you think that was like creation beginning? In the beginning, yes, I think so. Yes. Know the pain is since he came on the earth and tried to help us, we should want to be like Jesus. Amen. We should indeed. Other thoughts or comments? All right, very good. Uh, well, that's the prologue. That's the introduction to this. Now, 19 to 28. This is the testimony of John. And the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? They confessed and did not deny. They confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why did you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the fallen of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So, the Jewish leaders, they send uh, some experts in purification, the priests and the Levites, up to John. They want to find out, who is this guy? I mean, it's obviously having a great impact. He's a religious leader. And so they want to know how to identify him. And so uh, they ask him some questions. Uh, they, they start with, who are you? But they, they specify that. Um, they ask, uh, obviously, if he was the Christ, and how does he respond to that? I am not the Christ. 
He vigorously repudiates any idea that he himself was the Messiah. So then what do they ask? Before that, Elijah, and he says, I am not. And they ask, the prophet, and he says, no. Now, think about those figures. The Messiah, the Christ, would be that anointed one that was supposed to come, that they were looking forward to. They, they thought of him as a deliverer, primarily. What about Elijah? He never died. He didn't die. And they were expecting Elijah sort of to come back. Now, there's a sense in which John was an Elijah. He was the Elijah referred to in Malachi for another Elijah-like figure who would prepare the way for Jesus. But they had the idea of Elijah himself being reincarnated or whatever and coming back. John wasn't that. And the prophet, what do they have in mind by the prophet? Is that Exactly. But there'd be a prophet like me that God will raise up. That's Deuteronomy 18. So they thought of the prophet. Now really Jesus was the prophet. But they, they saw the prophet and the Messiah as being two different figures. Uh, so they kind of go through their checklist of expected uh, end time uh, persons. And John is many of those. Now, do you notice how John does this? What do, you, do you see anything in his answers? What did you say? They get shorter. That's an interesting thing. Why do you think they get shorter? Yes! He is tired of people focusing attention on him. He doesn't want to be the object of attention. He didn't come here for people to look at him. He came here for people to look at Jesus. So he just gets increasingly shorter. He doesn't like to answer questions about himself. He came to bear witness of the true light. John will later say, I'm, he must increase and I must decrease. You know, uh, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, we, can't, we came not to, to preach ourselves, but Jesus. We, we have a tr to struggle with that sometimes. We like the attention. We want the glory. We want people to see us and look at us and think about us. We want our name to be up there. John wasn't like that. He absolutely did not want people to think about him. We need to be a lot more like John in that. But they, they, you know, this delegation is getting nowhere fast. All they're finding out is who he's not, and they've got to give an answer to the people who sent them. So they said, so what do you say about yourself? They kind of ask a wide open question. Well, let you just define yourself in whatever categories you want to. And what does he say then? I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. What? Yeah, make straight the way, get ready for Jesus. And so he identifies himself. I mean, if it had been us, we'd have said, I'm John the Baptist, son of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And he doesn't do that. He says, I'm just a voice telling about Jesus. Look at him, focus on him. He's the one. 
that that I want to draw attention to. John was a man of very few words when he came to talking about himself, but he's got a lot to say whenever he's talking about Jesus. He would like to obliterate himself so that everybody could see Jesus. What do you think? Is that a good, good attitude on his part? It's a lot for us to see. You know, this is kind of a, a model of discipleship for us right here. And again, I want you to think about it. You know, I've used this illustration before. It's really helpful to me. I spent the summer of 1980 working as a preacher intern with Aud McKee. Uh, he's Probably, maybe none of you would have known him. But, you know, I spent the summer at his home. And I asked him all kinds of questions. I watched him. It was really cool. He was in his early 60s, probably then. And one of the things that struck me, as I kept talking to him, asking him questions, watching him, he never thought about himself. You know, he really couldn't answer personal questions that well. And he was just all focused on the Lord, and on other people, and on what he was doing. And, and it didn't strike me that that was an act on his part. You know, some people be like that, but you know, wouldn't really be that. And we wanted you to, to notice how humble they are. But with him, it's just like, he really just didn't think about himself. It was just all the Lord and, 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 the, and the people he was trying to help. That's what we need. That's the way John walks. Just, it's the Lord. I'm the voice. Look at him. I'm preparing his way. All right. Coming to questions through verse uh, 23. Right. Sometimes we can take humility as, you know, like a sort of backwards pride. Like, we, if we want to be humble, we have to think of ourselves as lowly and worthless and we don't have any talents or anything. But it sounds like the sort of humility that John had. He just didn't think about the abundance or lack of talent that he had. He just thought about Jesus. It's an excellent point. Yeah, humility is not thinking you're low. Humility is just not focusing on you. Because I, I see people like there was a boy uh, in my band years and years ago that he was a, he was a great trumpeter. That was a long time ago. It predates pretty much everybody in here. But, uh, but not my school band that I was part of. And, uh, you know, he was a great trumpet player. But he would always tell everybody how bad he was. He was first chair by like eons. None of us were even close to him. We all fought over second chair, but first chair was untouchable. But he'd always talk about how he played so bad, he's so bad. Well, he just wanted people to say how good he was. You know, it's like it's kind of annoying. He wasn't he really was good. But why why tell everybody then how bad you are? You know, sometimes that can be just a way of trying to draw attention to ourselves. John just doesn't draw attention to himself. He's just not thinking about himself. He don't want people to think about him. But he's plenty willing to try to get people to focus on Jesus. Now, they said, why are you baptizing them? You know, if you're not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet, and again, what does John do? Back to Jesus, Back to Jesus again. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me, and I, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. And so he says whatever he has to say about himself as briefly as possible to get the attention right back focused on Jesus. He says, you know, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. There was a saying in the Talmud that every servant, every, every service, that a servant owes his master. A disciple owes his teacher except untie his shoe. 
And I, that's, that's kind of the, the lowest task of a slave that's even beneath the dignity of a disciple to do for his teacher. And what John's saying is, even serving as Jesus' a slave is too great an honor for me. That's how he thought of Jesus. And that's what he wants us to think of Jesus. Comments or questions through verse 28. Right. So they have some kind of assumption that baptism was going to accompany I don't know that as much as just, well, that's kind of a unique thing. He has to be somebody. There may have been proselyte baptism at this time. And so you know, that may have made it more understandable to them, and yet he's baptizing Jews. So I don't know that that's necessarily saying that they thought that the Messiah or the prophet would be a baptizer, but just you're doing something unusual. Why if you're not somebody special? J.D.? Okay. JP. I like the contrast that we see later on with Jesus washing their feet as this kind of idea that yes, he is someone great and mighty and at the same time he can't have that certain attitude where he can still be honored by doing I guess a servant's work and I don't know I guess it's just cool to see two different contrasts of the same word to see how John had so much honor and respect for this Christ who was supposed to come that he didn't see it fit that he could do that and Christ showed honor by doing the Excellent contrast. Yes. Ben. That dual nature of Christ has always been harsh and reconciled in many ways thinking about how Christ could be so great and yet still be a servant. I think we recognize it and we bring it together in the fact that Christ was God and he was man. In the sense that God is great, certain things about God are just a part of him. He's life, as first John says. He's pure, he's, he's eternal, and if he's something else, then that's not God. And, you know, Jesus was those things. And when he became a man, he took on certain qualities. And one of those essential qualities of being a human is being a servant. And Jesus Christ exemplified that even more than John does here. He goes all the way to the cross. He is the ultimate servant. And we can get so crossways on that. Even if his own disciples were so close to him. And yet they're still arguing with the greatest. They think they're serving God. And they've got this so mixed up. And we need to recognize our essential humanity that reduced to being a servant. Amen. Amen. Other thoughts? Yes. Laura. He ought to draw attention to himself if he really is important. That's what we would think. All right, very good. Um, 29 to 34. The next day, 
he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending, and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Alright, so here is John's testimony. What does he say about Jesus? He is the what? Lamb of God. Lamb of God? Why does he call Jesus that? Sacrifice. Yes. He's the reality of which all animal sacrifices were the shadow. You know, he is the lamb, the perfect sacrifice of God. And uh, he takes away the sin of the world by his sacrifice of himself. Now, John says, you know, uh, this is the one I was telling you about when I said my successor is actually my predecessor. And I didn't really know that it was him until the Spirit came on him. Because I was told that the one that the Spirit comes on, that's the one. And he did. And I saw it. And so he truly is the Lamb of God. He truly is the Son of God. And, and by having that sign of the Spirit come on him, this is not John's opinion. He's got this evidenced by that sign from heaven. So this is John's full testimony. He, you call him on the witness stand. He's the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. Comments and questions? Yes. Well, I don't know that they would have, but they could have. I mean, you know, they had all kinds of lambs they used to sacrifice. And when he says to, to, takes away the sin of the world, well, a lamb that takes away sin is a sacrificial lamb. So. And, uh, um, and the spirit would find Jesus, you would think of that as his baptism. But um, John well, I think he's saying he didn't know he was the Messiah until the dove came. Yes, he knew who he was, but he didn't know that he was the Messiah until the Holy Spirit came down on his, at his baptism. Yes? Well, I mean, I don't think that anybody else has ever received the Spirit like Jesus received it. And so I think when the Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove on Jesus and God's voice spoke out of heaven, that, that John perhaps he'd been given enough information by God to know that the sign would be the dove coming when the, when the voice spoke. It was a, that whole event. In fact, the heavens split apart at that point. The whole sky split open. God's voice came and the dove came down. So I don't think that means that if we see a dove, we autom automatically think of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but, but that information had been given to John. Logan. Could, is it, because it says that the Holy Spirit descended as a dove, does that mean that it actually looked like a dove, or is that the only way to describe what the Holy Spirit would look like? 
I suppose it looked like a dove. You know, came down in a dove form. Not that that's what the Holy Spirit inherently looks like, but that was the visible symbol on, through which the Holy Spirit came on. J.D. I should have taken ornithology or something. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't know the answer to those questions. <laughs> Got out of that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said that, that uh, John wouldn't have known that he was the Messiah. But then why uh, in the other account we see it that it says, I need to be baptized by you? Yeah, again, obviously John and Jesus knew each other. They were cousins. And I assume John knew Jesus didn't... <laughs> He wasn't a sinner like everybody else was. I mean, he could see that in his character, what he knew about it. So he knew enough about Jesus to realize, this is to confess your sins and wash away your sins. You know, why are you coming to me? But he didn't know he was the Messiah. Maybe he even had suspicions, I don't know. But he didn't know that he was until the sign took place. And then he had confirmation of that. Ben? First of all, about the Spirit, there wasn't just a dove, there was also a voice. I suspect people realize there's a little bit more going on, and that might have helped with that. I don't know if that like that. Yeah, I agree. When you think about though, this humility John has, there are two things that make it especially amazing. Number one, if he's talking that way to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. Even before he knows Jesus is the Messiah, he has a sense of, of you know lowliness that he recognizes other people as greater than himself. Not just the idea of, oh, of course the Lord's greater, of course the Messiah's going to be so much higher than I but he still honors Jesus higher than himself before he realizes he's the Lord. He's, he's, perce he's perceptive to see that. But then also, this is at a time when he is the most popular man in Judea. Everyone is coming out to see him. And I, we all feel so low when something goes wrong, when you know, things are falling apart, when things are going well, that's the moment we say, well, you know, maybe God couldn't have Good point. I mean, you know, wow. How many times has attention and popularity corrupted people. Maybe they were humble. <laughs> they were humble long enough they actually got some kind of recognition and that runs it. John didn't seem to notice that he was important. He didn't care. He wasn't important for himself. The whole focus was on the Lord. Tim. Um, I thought it was an that the angel said I don't know if Mary understood the full significance of what was said to her. I don't know if others really understood that. I mean, Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord has come to me. Exactly what she understood by that, I don't know. Zachariah said some pretty impressive things. I don't know the answer to that. You know, um, but I think when John says, I didn't recognize him except through this, that it has to be that this was the thing that really revealed Jesus' identity as Messiah to him. 
Uh, so again, I, I don't know. It's possible that he had these suspicions, or or that he, or whatever. But that the thing that really made that concrete and reality for him, he saw the sign got appointed. That, that's all really I know to say about that, Mason. Uh, question about chronology. Since John here is reporting what we assume to be uh, about Jesus' baptism, what he saw when that happened, then the events of this day and the day before and the days after are after Jesus has come back from the 40 days in the wilderness. I think so. Yes. So it's the beginning of his ministry when these when these things happen. Yes, I think so. That's a good point. I think that we know from the other Gospels, Jesus baptized when the wilderness was tempted for 40 days, and then he starts his ministry. But what we've got here in 29, you know, when he sees Jesus coming to him, he identifies him as the Lamb of God. I'm assuming that's after the 40 days, because then we have the next day in verse 35, and the next day in 43, and so forth. We've got a whole series of days of Jesus' work. Good point. Bring it. So I may have answered this already, but how are we to understand where Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit? How are we to understand his work in that Good question. I don't know that I want to go into all of that, partially because I'm not sure I can answer all of that. I would just observe that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the faithful in the Messianic age was a big thing. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 32, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, and so forth and so on. And so when he identifies Jesus as the one who baptized him with the Holy Spirit, he's really saying Jesus is the one that these prophecies were focused on. Yes? You know, verse 23, I think so. That's the way I see that. Because he said, you know, he who sent me to baptize in water, that be God, said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I'm taking it that God had revealed that directly to John, and this was the sign that gave it away. Jake. So kind of in the courtroom and witness testimony here, John, verse 34, is bearing witness because he saw the Spirit descend that this is the Son of God. Yes, exactly. So it's not just that John says, oh, I, you know, he kind of looked like the Son of God to me. He's got a direct sign from God. Wait. Okay, um, I just want to like make sure about this. So John the Baptist baptized them to like prepare them. Yes. And then once he died, they all have to get rebaptized again into his I believe so, Acts 19. That may be kind of far afield from this, but Acts 19, I think, says yes. Logan. I was thinking about Mark 3, whenever the Pharisees criticized the power that Jesus had in doing miracles and saying that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Would that mean that when Jesus received the Holy Spirit, that that was how he had the power to do miracles and wouldn't have otherwise? Uh, I think that there are some passages that connect Jesus' miracles with the Holy Spirit. I would particularly notice Acts 10.38, 
You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil and so forth. So I think there's some connection. Uh, and Ma Matthew 12, 28, he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. So I think the Holy Spirit was in part the agency through which Jesus did some of those wonderful works. He was all God and all God, so just accepting. <laughs> sure, yeah. There's, and there's a lot more depth to some of this stuff than I have, that's for sure. Right, good discussion, good, good comments and questions. Uh, the next deck, somebody read uh, 35 to 42. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him saying this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about the eleventh hour, I mean the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him he had found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and, had, and he had brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, is trans, which when translated is Peter. Okay, so the next day, John does it again. There's a couple of his disciples, John's disciples, that are there when he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, what happens when John does that? Yeah, those two disciples turn their back on John and start following Jesus. Made a big mistake there, didn't he? <laughs> Tell somebody about that and they're liable to leave you and go after him. But that, you see, is exactly what John wanted. This is what he was trying to do. There was no jealousy in John. John was not coming to try to attach people to himself, but to Jesus. That's the spirit we need to have. We need to have a lot more people who are willing to mortgage their own personal ambitions to try to give Jesus preeminence and get people to follow after Jesus. John's a great example in this. So, these two disciples start following Jesus. Jesus turns and sees them and he asks what question? What do you seek? What are you looking for? That's a good question, don't you think? Might not be bad if we'd ask that ourselves. These are the first words Jesus speaks in this gospel. And they're, they're pretty important words. What do you seek? What did they answer? Where are you staying? Where are you staying? That's a pretty important question too. Why would they ask where he was staying? Exactly, they want to be with him. There is no more important goal than to be with Jesus. They want to be with him. Where are you staying? We want to be there. And, and it was about the 10th hour. Now, we don't know for sure who the two disciples were. Andrew was one of them. I think John himself was the other one and that he never forgot the hour that he first met Jesus. Made an impact on him. What does Andrew do? Yeah, he goes and finds his brother to bring him to Jesus. 
You don't know a lot about Andrew. But three times in John, we'll see him bringing people to Jesus. I, I don't know if Andrew really ever, you know, did spectacular things on his own. But I'm guessing if there hadn't been an Andrew, there wouldn't have been a Peter. And bringing people to Jesus, that's about the most important work we could ever do. Jesus sees Simon, son of John, and what does he immediately say to him? I'm renaming you. <laughs> Not Simon anymore, it's Cephas now. It's Cephas is Aramaic. Peter would be the Greek translation. Why would Jesus do that? Didn't like the sound of the name Simon? <laughs> What's that say? Jesus knew his character. He knew his character. And? He claimed him. I think he's... Exactly. I think he's predicting what he's going to make out of him. He was a Simon, he's going to become a Peter. Well, what's a Simon? Well, the Old Testament equivalent of Simon is Simeon. Actually, Peter's called Simeon in Acts 15, same name. Do you remember anything about Simeon? Yeah, remember him in Genesis 34? Uh, you know, killing uh, the, the Shechemites. He was pretty reckless, pretty violent, pretty impulsive, not too stable. What's Cephas mean? A rock, something strong, reliable, steady. Jesus is going to take a Simon and make him into a Peter. He was going to transform him. I wonder what Jesus sees when we come to him. You know, sometimes we have a hard time knowing. I see Jesus take some people and make them into something I didn't think they could be made into. Some of us, that's happened in our own lives. And, and that's the way Jesus looked at people. He didn't look at people so much for what they were right then. He looked at people more for what they could become by his transforming power. He saw the perspective of their potential. Jesus, I think Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you a rock. You look at the, the Gospels. Does Peter seem much like a rock in the Gospels? He still seems more like a Simon. But you look at him after that, he's, been, he's become a rock. God really did, Jesus really did something with, with uh, Peter. What, what chapter was that in Genesis? Genesis 34. 34. In verse 41, is there any significance to why it was specified that he first found his own brother? Is it just because he'll find people later? Well, I think it's saying that was top priority. Before he did anything else, he found Peter and brought him. Simon and brought him, whatever. Yeah, so I think it's just showing the urgency of that. Ben? Do you think this occurred before Jesus called them to see when they were meant to Good question. Yes, I do. I think that we have three stages in the career of the apostles. Uh, a lot of people worked on this, but uh, 
that there's this period of loose association, what you've got right here, where they spend some time with Jesus. You know, they, they, they stay with him a little bit. They hear him preach. They even saw that miracle at Cain of Galilee where he turned the water into wine. But they're not all the time with him. They've just got a loose association with him. Then Jesus calls them, when they were in the boat fishing, to constant companionship. Drop everything else for good, and you just be with me. And then out of his companions, he calls 12 to be apostles. So they go from a period of loose association to constant fellowship to full apostleship. I think there's three stages in their career. Good question. Roger. It's interesting that the first person that he gets is, uh, is his brother. And I think we need to learn to do that. Like the first person that we get to try to get Jesus to is our own family. Sometimes the last person to talk to. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes. Um, Matthew, people get confused and think that Peter is the rock, the foundation of the church, rather than the confession. And um, I guess further confused that is the fact Peter's name means rock. Um, did Jesus call him rock here? Any significance for that at all? Was it just a coincidence? Well, I, it's hard to say what his purpose was. I do think Jesus plays on that in what he says in Matthew 16, 18. He says, you're a rock, and upon this bedrock, it's a little different word, means a larger, more substantial rock. You're a rock, and upon this rock, which you confess that I'm the Son of God, I will build my people. So I think he does use Peter's name in that. Shane. You know, we, we continue talking about this humility of John. This service attitude. What do you think, for application for us, how can we get to this kind of humility, this kind of humility that even though John had grown so great in, in the standard of the Lord as, as a standard of serving the Lord, that he didn't think of himself at all, how do we, we become that way? What, what, what are some things we can think about in that regard? Good question. I think mostly focusing on Jesus and just making him more important, making his work and his will and his word more important, and just forgetting ourselves and our focus on him. I mean, sometimes it's hard not to think about something, like not to think about yourself. How do you not think about yourself? I'm not going to think about myself. I'm not going to think about myself. So what are you thinking about? <laughs> you know? So I think you focus more and more on the Lord. And you just turn your eyes away from yourself to Him. I don't know something better than that, Tim. Um, something in 1 Corinthians 13 a lot, and it seems that love really is just about the well-being of everybody else besides you, and I think that the greatest motivation to do that then is your happiness becomes or comes when other people are better off. And then it is the same way a mother is to her children. A mother loses who she is and becomes happy for good things after her children. I think that's what we need to do about Jesus. Good point. Alan? Okay. Ben? We have to be very careful to make sure we see this from the top down, we see it from God and then down. We think about the world around us and the people around us and we think the very best person is your idol. If you got a chance to, to be close to Michael Jordan or Winston Churchill or whoever it is, and you got to serve them hand and foot, you just waited on them you know, all day and your life could be wasted. We, we recognize that you're frustrated, you see their flaws, you see those things and, and we look at Jesus that way saying, well, he's, I can't think of anyone I want to serve like that. So I don't think it's wonderful. 
And yet we need to look at the other way saying he is that great. How great must he be? I mean, we look at what John says about tying the scandal. That's just, that's ridiculous. I mean, we're all Americans. We're all equal. You think of someone who is that high. And then you have a reason to think so little of Amen. Good point. Yes. Well, we're told that he who exalt he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. Yeah, I mean, this is going back to if we how are we to um, put ourselves last and God first, keeping His will number one. God's going to wind up exalting you anyway if you humble yourself before Him. So that's just all the more reason to if we worry about us and advancing ourselves. We're going to be humble. If we, if we humble ourselves and put his will first, he'll take care of us. Amen. Very good. Yes, John? I think also just the attitude of being content with what our role is. Uh, I was thinking about John, I'm just going back to verse 23, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, what if you wanted to be a city boy? You know, he's like, I don't, I don't like being in the wilderness, you know. <laughs> you know, but he was content with serving in the capacity of God wanted. Very good. All right. Good comments. Anything else? All right. Um, 43 to 51. We'll take a break after we do this section. 43 to 51. Jesus says to follow him and what does Philip do? Hey, goes and finds Nathaniel. Uh, Philip's an interesting character. We see him three more times in the Gospel of John. This might be overdrawn, obviously. Four brief shots are hardly enough to just depict a person. But, but really, you stop and look at Philip he doesn't ever strike you as being someone of great ability. I mean, Philip, all he does is to say, you know, we found him, you know, of of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. And then that, can he even think about Nazareth? Nazareth, what's what's Philip's answer? Come and see. Come and see. You don't have an answer for that, but maybe that's the best answer for that. Come and see. Look at Jesus for yourself. Now, this Nathaniel, a lot of people make this case, and I'm, um, I'm with them. I think Nathaniel is probably the same as Bartholomew in the other three Gospels. For one thing, Bartholomew, Bar means son of, 
Bartholomew wasn't his name, it was his last name, so to speak. It was the son of Tholomew. Nathaniel appears to have been an apostle from his connection with the other apostles in 21-2. And Philip and Bartholomew are always together in all the lists of the apostles. So I suspect it's Nathaniel, son of Tholomew. I don't care whether you believe that or not, but I think that's uh, you know, probably accurate. Um, Jesus sees Nathaniel coming to him, and what does Jesus say? One who fulfills the true ideal of what Israel ought to mean. Who has no guile or deceit. There's no duplicity. He's totally sincere. Or you might, you remember the, uh, where the word Israel comes from, Israelite? Comes from what? Yeah, from, from who? Jacob. Jacob's name was changed. Which was kind of a change in his character. Here is a 100% Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. Because Jacob was a cunning deceiver, a crafty, you know, sort of a guy who was purified by the Lord. So this guy is all Israel. He's really honest. That's what God, what, what Jesus said. He's a really honest man. What's the thing Nathaniel says to answer that? How do you know me? What would we have said? If Jesus said, now there's a really honest man, what would we have said? Right. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe like, oh no, not really. <laughs> Even though we knew we were. And not the way we do those things. We're sort of kind of, in humility, we'll sort of avoid it. Like, oh no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> Nathaniel is so honest when Jesus says here's a really honest man he's not deceitful at all he said how do you know me he knew that was true about him he wasn't prideful but he, he knew that was, that was accurate how, how do you know me well Jesus said oh I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you what does that tell you about Jesus what He's observant, yeah, but we can be observant, but not like that. What does that tell you about Jesus? Yeah, he sees us all the time, even when he's not there. He sees you when you're sleeping. But on a real level, not at a fictional level. So, that's amazing. I mean, wow. He, he actually knew what Philip was doing and where he was, or what Nathaniel was doing, where he was before Philip called him. That's so incredible to Nathaniel that Nathaniel adds his testimony. What does he say? Yeah, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. That's what he believes. And Jesus says, you said that just because I said I saw you when you were underneath the fig tree? Wow, you're going to see a lot more than that. You know, he was convinced on relatively weak evidence. There's a lot more impressive things he'll be able to see. He would see greater things that would show his connection with God. 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're going to see how closely connected I really am with heaven. It's going to be a lot more than just having seen you when I wasn't there. Comments and questions? Mason. So is it a good thing or a bad thing that he was convinced that easily? Well, I don't think it was bad. It was just surprising. I don't think he's rebuking him, but I think he is saying, wow, that's nothing compared to what you will see. Brigham. Is there a, uh, an intentional connection to Jacob's dream? Uh, yes. Yes, definitely. I think so. I think Jesus is uh, Jacob's ladder. He is the connection between heaven and, and earth. And, and so probably kind of continuing that Jacob theme. Yeah, Brigham. Well, I think all through Jesus' life and what Jesus said and what he did and his miracles and his words, I think he continues to see how Jesus connects heaven and earth. So I don't think there was a one-time event. Perhaps, but I don't think it was just that. That's my opinion. Whatever it's worth. Then, no. Good. Matt. I think the point of Jacob's ladder is there's, you know, earth and, and heaven are kind of combined. You know, and there's a real connection. It's kind of like one verse 18, you know, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among Good point. Yeah, good point. Yes. 49, what is he calling Rabbi? Rabbi just means my teacher. So he's recognizing him as a, a teacher. That would be something they would call Jewish teachers. Um, I forget how clear, no, Isaiah talks about some, but how clear is it, how much do they expect and anticipate the Son of God being on earth? Because I kind of have the impression that that was kind of a new thing, uh, the Son of God being on earth. Yes. Maybe the question is, what did he mean by Son of God? And from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel 7, Son of God may be another way of saying the King, the Messiah, that God appoints. I'm not sure on Nathaniel's lips that this means Son of God the way we would think of that. But God more or less adopted the King as his Son. That may be all Nathaniel's saying at this point then. I think Philip's a real good example for us because we can kind of tell he's not, he's not a man of many words. But he says it how it is. And I think many times we use the same excuse of why we don't share the gospel. I'm not real slick. I'm not real quick of tongue or quick of mind. But literally we can use the same strategy Philip uses and just come and see. You know, I'll show you what God says in his word. And that's all we need to do. Amen. Yes. What was the connection you were making uh, between Christ saying that in him was no deceit in Jacob? Basically, Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So he says, here's an Israel light indeed, in whom is no Jacob. Yes? How is that Christ sees that uh, there's no deceit in him when Philip or when Nathaniel's on the street? Like, what is, how is that? It's like, oh, I know, he's, there's no deceit. That's not my picture. 
think it wasn't because he saw him there, but because he knows him. I think Jesus not only knew where, where Nathaniel was before Philip called him, he knew his character. He knew his heart and his life. So I think he has, you know, he, he says that about his character. How do you know me? He says, oh, I was looking at you before Philip called you underneath the, underneath the fig tree. So like Jesus knows everything about him. Ben. When you think about it, that's plenty enough for us to say, yes, this man is special. We should follow him. We should see something different about him. And yet, very often in our own lives, we're confronted with some truth that we need to change, to conform to, something about Jesus we need to apply better. We say, that's not enough for me. Well, basically, what we're saying is, I want to have enough proof that I just have to do it. And he says, this is enough. And we are so blessed that God does give us so much. In the Jesus Christ, when he came and declared the Father, we have so much. And yet there were prophets who lived centuries before. We never had that much. We had greater faith than we had today. And it is to our shame. Amen. John. I really like the phrase in verse 50, you will see greater things than these. Like we've been impressed with what God has done thus far, but we should be excited about what God has yet to do. And how he's going to work in the future. Amen. <clears throat> Say. Is the same as Philip that we heard in Acts No. No. Philip in Acts 8 was one of the seven. This Philip is one of the twelve. Good, good question. All right. We are going to take a break, but let me give you some instructions before we do that. Uh, 